Kate, welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first, what is astonishing you? Listen, I don't know if you've heard this story, but uh, there are reports um, out of the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, about these villagers who have discovered this mountain uh, that's... um, that's rich in gold deposits. I don't, have you heard that story oh. yet? Well, uh, there's not a lot in the mainstream media about it. And you'll find um, a lot of YouTube videos from uh, vloggers, uh, both oh. on the continent of Africa and uh, Britain and uh, the US. And uh, the videos show these villagers with shovels and baskets mining through the soil for these gold nuggets. And of course, it is not a surprise that someone would find gold in Africa because for centuries, Africa has been known as a, you know, mineral rich um, um, continent. But here's what's astonishing to me. In these videos, the villagers um, who have lived in poverty, they're not fighting each other for this gold. In the videos, you see this great cooperation. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's some who are shoveling some who are washing the gold, others who are separating the nuggets. It is it is a beautiful, I mean, it seems a little chaotic, but if you watch for a minute, you, you'll see the cooperation. Um, uh, it's just a beautiful display of, of community and of yeah. uh, caring for the whole village. It's not just about me and mine. Um, it reminds me of of, of the story in the Old Testament about manna, right? Yep. Some gathered yep. more, but it wasn't too much. Some gathered less, but it wasn't, you know, it was still enough. Oh, yeah. uh, and it's, yeah. it is really beautiful. Um, and I, I love it. As a matter of fact, I was listening to uh, one, uh, watching one vlogger. His name is Mr. Uganda, young man um, uh, in Britain who is from Uganda. And, um, and he was, he, he was really moved by uh, this village. Now, of course, <laughs> with this, this blessing, there comes a great danger because uh, both the devil and um, colonizers are tricky. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the government of, of the Congo has stepped in to secure uh, the site because people were flooding in from all parts um, and putting a lot of stress on this village. And they have, they've come in to secure the site. And so mining has been uh, temporarily shut down. And when we say mining, we're not talking, you know, big industrial machines, just shovels, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And now there's concern about, um, you know, industrialized nations um, coming in, especially from the West, especially China. I mean, China over the past few decades has really been making a lot of moves uh, on the continent. And the concern is that, um, you know, industrialized nations go in, they offer loans um, and these developing countries can't pay them back. And basically they, countries, Yeah, in their debt. And they say, well, since you can't pay off the debt, we want your, we want access to your mineral wealth, wealth. And so the continent of Africa is mineral rich, but struggles with poverty because of this, this renewed uh, colonial uh, power. Um, I mean, I did a little, uh, a quick search, and let's see, what did I find? Um, that Africa is right now the most mineral-rich continent on the planet. Uh, it is first or second when it comes to cobalt, diamonds, phosphate, platinum, also nickel and uranium. So you can see why these industrialized yeah. countries are wanting to recolonize the continent. And... It is scary. It is scary. And because 
because of the legacy of uh, colonial co colonialism, those African leaders who have wealth and power are cooperating with yeah. those industrialized nations, basically sending their children to Britain, yeah. to Germany, to the US to get an education, to come back and to rule, not for the people, but for themselves. And the trade-off is that they just allow these other nations to come in and uh, take what they want. And yeah. say, well, let us be the wealthy, powerful ones in the land. And it's hurting, it's killing the continent. Well, I mean, I remember just the first time I really started to think about colonialism as a um, big, big picture and sort of just recognizing the deep irony that, that it's because the continent of Africa has so much concentrated wealth of natural resources and sort of what you would think is that would be a huge advantage in terms of development and in terms of a balance of power globally. And the way it has worked out is it's been a huge disadvantage because it has just put a target on, on everyone's, you know, because you think of the, <clears throat> the culture and the common communal values of those villagers. <clears throat> and it reminds me of manna for sure. And it reminds me of this like foretaste of shalom, right? Mutual mm -hmm. flourishing. So this idea that sure, one person, one way to do it is just to fight to have the most and then say, I have achieved salvation because I have, I have more than I have enough for myself and more than my neighbors. Another way of understanding salvation is to say, I can't have enough if my neighbors are still in lack, right? Like I will never be able to enjoy the peace of my children having access to healthcare and food fully until I have the peace that comes from knowing every other mother's has the same, right? Like that, that is true shalom and true salvation. And so you, you see the indigenous culture, which is practicing that and understands that. And then you see this, you know, um, spiritual battle between others coming in with a different understanding of what salvation is, which that it's, is that it's limited. There's not abundance, there's not enough. And so only some will get, and so make sure the worthy get and what makes someone worthy it's power and, and just that battle of ideology. And it's difficult when you, I mean, you are a Westerner for me, I am a white person to just sort of understand what side like ancestrally, <laughs> you know, um, you know, my people have been on and wanting to sort of say, I recognize this and, and I grieve it. And I want to be able to spot it and name it and reject it because, um, you know, that's, that's devastating. And like, I think that fiduciary recolonization is happening everywhere. And because we often are told like, oh, this high finance, global final finance stuff, it's too complicated. You wouldn't understand it, but trust us. Like this right. is, this is, we're, we're working in everyone's best interest. And, you know, the work of, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote the book, Winner Take All. But I mean, just this idea that like, that's a presupposition, A, the presupposition that we don't understand and pre and B, the presupposition that, I mean, well, and I should just say the presupposition that we don't understand, which is like, don't believe the evidence of your own eyes and mind. Like what you see is not real. What you see great injustice and great inequity and great suffering and your moral code tells you that that's wrong, but don't believe what you see and don't believe what you believe trust that they are working in everyone's best interests. And I just, you know, I think it takes a lot of courage um, to say like, no, no, maybe I am going to trust the plain evidence of my eyes and soul, or at least maybe I'm going to say to you, you know what, if you need me <laughs> to, adapt your worldview, then you are going to have to do a better job at actually proving to me that this actually is for the common good because it, mm -hmm. you know, but we just, I think, I mean, especially as a white person, you're just raised 
unconsciously to have such a deference for authority, um, which can be a good thing, or which can be a good thing. And we'll talk about that later in the podcast, but can be a really terrible thing because it, because it allows you not to um, perceive and embody truth. Yeah. And it, and in America, we have an addiction to cheap. We like things cheap. And, you know, someone like me of African descent needs to say to Apple, hey, listen, if you need to charge me more for my cell phone in order to pay Africans a better wage, do it. I'm not that addicted to cheap. Well, and more than that, I think we need to say demand of people, I mean, to planned obsolescence, right? To say mm. like, I, A, I'm, I'm willing to pay people what they're worth and B, I expect you to make a product that isn't designed to die in two years. <laughs> like that's not, um, anyway, I, let's be on, but that is, I mean, that's a really beautiful, I mean, I guess I like in naming the problem, I don't want the astonishment to get lost, which is the kingdom of God is breaking in and there is another way. And we see it, that there's deep irony that we've been, see it in places that we've been taught to discount. And how wonderful is it that it was these villagers, not some company looking for gold, because there are plenty of those, but these villagers discovered this this area of gold and um, yeah, they're sharing. That's amazing. It's really, that is that is a shot in the arm of of hope. So, so what's astonishing you? Uh, Well, my two girls, I have three kids and only two of them are in school so far. I have a high schooler, a middle schooler and a preschooler. Don't judge. (laughs) And um, so my high schooler and my middle schooler have not been in person since March of last year. And I'm not mad. Um, I, I really um, felt even though I felt for some time that my children personally would be safe, I have not been um, at all comfortable with asking teachers to um, expose themselves and potentially their family members. Like I, I just think, what does what 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 kind of moral education is that for my children? Like I don't want that. So I, I was. They have been at home. Um, it it has not been great, um, but. it has been the right thing. And, um, they went back though last week and my gosh, they're just so happy. Like they're just so happy. And my kids have been great. Um, they, they, they've had their moments, but for the most part, I mean, they just have really, they're not dumb. So like they just understand. And so, you know, we try to give them space to process that. And, and I'm, I mean, look, caveat, I have every blessing that a person could possibly have. So we we have not had the kind of hard pandemic that so many people have had. And so I'm not, like one reason my kids have been great is because they've had a lot of resources during this time. They've had a stable family. We've had enough food and we have not, you know, our home has not been at stake. We have not dealt with serious illness from COVID. Um, and my older two girls are close enough in age that, they can kind of be peers to each other. And so that has been, you know, different. So, um, but they have been great, but they, um, I, I mean, like they were kind of, they were excited to go back and also hesitant. And I, I, my expectation was that, you know, because they were going to go back and it was going to be small numbers and everybody was going to be masked and they weren't going to be able to I mean, essentially they are still learning in front of their screens all day long. And like, I just thought like, oh, this is going to be potentially a letdown for them. Like they've been looking forward to it. And when it comes, it's still going to be not the same and that'll be disappointing to them. And so I just have been so astonished and so grateful and so really just thankful to God for some place of goodness that they, they just are so happy, like so happy um, to be back. So grateful for their teachers. Mm. Um, they both are starting in brand new schools. So, I mean, it's just a huge, um, shift, but it's just been so good. And it does make me, I guess I just feel like it's a little bit of the first fruits of some of the goodness that I believe God 
will produce a harvest of through this time. I believe that God will not let all of this suffering be for nothing. And I believe that, um, you know, God is up to something. And so I, I'm grateful just to see this joy in my kids. And I'm also grateful that, you know, they're just things that they took for granted that they don't. Um, and I think it will forever change the way that they perceive and experience going to school. So I'm sorry that this happened. I don't believe that God caused it. I'm not saying it was a good thing, but I am just astonished at this tiny piece of restoration. And I'm, and I'm not going to take that for granted, right? Like I am going to celebrate it and give thanks to God for it and notice it because, um, because we, we need to, we, we need, our spirits need that. Mm. So yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm astonished at. Yeah. Yesterday, um, I was here at home, in my home office, right next to my desk. There's a window that looks out to the front of our house. And I, I looked out my window and um, our seven-year-old, Matthew, was playing with kids in the neighborhood. And they were all just running around and screaming. And it just made me really, really happy. Uh, to Mm -hmm. see that. And it's such a small thing. Um, But given what we've been through, yeah, before COVID, it was really easy to take that for granted. Mm -hmm. No, so it's, it's good. And I I feel like so many people have paid such a high price for everything Mm -hmm. um, that just, it feels like there's something really sacred about not taking anything for granted mm-hmm. now. Like that's a way of honoring um, all the loss. So yes, I'm, yeah, I'm grateful. Yeah, pre-COVID, um, <laughs> Matthew and I, our, our um, <laughs> don't judge me, part of our Sunday um, afternoon ritual was- Oh, I know. Uh, after lunch, we would go get ice cream. Uh, Cold Stone is our favorite. And then on most Sundays, we would go to uh, Dave and Buster's, a video arcade game place. Mm-hmm. And we would spend a couple of hours there, just the two of us. And um, he said to me just the other day, uh, Daddy, when things get back to normal, it's like, what, what seven-year-old, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I. I can't imagine that coming out of my mouth at seven, you know, uh, but he said, daddy, when things get back to normal, can we go back to Dave and Buster's? And so I, I know he, he, he very much feels that things are not as they should be. Yeah. Well, I mean, my four-year-old talks all the time about like when the germ storm is over and like, I'm tired <laughs> of the germ storm and hot, you know, yeah. so I think, and I guess like, that's the other thing is I, I was really um, struck the other day. I was driving somewhere and Quinn, my middle was in the back seat and she, NPR was on because it's always on because I don't do music. <laughs> and um, I always forget that they're listening, you know, <laughs> and, um, they were talking about just the kinds of effects or whatever. And Quinn said, you know, mom, they, they're saying that my generation is a lost generation. Like they're saying that this wow. Wow. is going to ruin us. Like, is that wow. true? And I thought it was so interesting I mean, A, that she picked that she picked up on it, and B, that she internalized it, and C, again, this idea of like this sort of intrinsic unconscious trust in people who come with authority, that like that was really a thing. And on my first instinct was like, I'm really annoyed at the hyperbole, mm. you know, that just of the rhetoric that people use politically, right? Like this, it was it was an article about like or a story about kids need back, need to get back to school because they're being destroyed by this. And I, and I'm not discounting the very real loss and pain that many kids are suffering. Right. So like advocating for the needs of those kids is really important. And it's really important that we don't send kids back to whatever is next with a sense that they are irrevocably at a deficit for the rest of their lives. Like that is insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think to be able to like notice what is good in this place of rebuilding and, and returning and also being able to point out to our kids, like you, you lost something 
by, by going through this experience, but you have also gained things like gained an awareness and a reverence and an appreciation for things that really matter that you would not have if things had stayed normal. That's and I just good. think it's really important that our, that all of us can nuance that, but especially that we can pass that along to our kids because when they come back, like they will be behind. And it's really important not to like be grownups and to say, sure, we have a process, there is a path, but you are not destroyed. You are not lost. Nothing has been taken from you that cannot that you cannot regain. Like, that's just not who we, that's not who we are. And um, even as we advocate for whatever political position we think is best, we need to make sure that we don't throw around really reckless language that we don't even mean. Like, adults don't mean that when they say it, but kids internalize it. So anyway. Yeah, that's really good. Because we would never say that of the generation that went off to World War II, right? Well, they right. lost a lot, but they yeah. gained a lot as well. Right, and I was saying to Quinn, And we like, call them well, the greatest generation. The greatest generation, right, which that's a whole nother story. But I was saying to Quinn, like, look, hard things happen in the world since the beginning. And children often will miss a year or two of school for because of war, because of civil war, because of some kind of natural disaster. And that's terrible. And it doesn't ruin them. Mm-hmm. And like, and this will not ruin you or your generation like that's that. Good. You know. Anyway, that's good. That's important. Yep. So, what are you thinking about? Well, <laughs> I am thinking about Dr. Seuss. Oh, right. yeah, Dr. Seuss Enterprises, the um, the company that oversees his legacy, has recently announced what, five, six books will no longer be published uh, because of racist imagery, uh, specifically toward uh, people of Asian and African descent. And, uh, you know, some conservatives are losing their minds saying that Dr. Seuss is now a victim of cancel culture. But if you just look at this with sober eyes, not not wanting to fight the culture war, you'll see, uh, at least for me, what what I see in this is um, that it shows us once again how pervasive racism is. That it shows us the pervasive nature of racism, that it's it's like um it's like pollen in the spring, right? It it gets on everything and everyone. Mm-hmm. It also shows us how we grow in our understanding that being anti-racist is a journey mm-hmm. and and the journey is okay. And uh, it shows us the imperfect nature of people we admire. Mm-hmm. And so we can allow them to be imperfect. Are we gonna completely throw out Dr. Seuss? No, <laughs> but mm-hmm. is there a place for criticism and maybe drawing some lines and boundaries? Absolutely. Uh, But for me, here's the beauty in that whole story. I love the fact that Dr. Seuss Enterprises heard some criticism, they took it to heart, and then they made a change, Mm -hmm. right? Biblically, that's called repentance. Correct. And it is beautiful and marvelous in our eyes and... um, Cancel culture, no. Repentance, yes. Yeah, I mean, growth. And I mean, I think we were talking last week about how like, I mean, it's just crazy that when people, when someone comes and says to you like, hey, this book, this speech, this action is really harmful for me, we go, that's politically, stop asking me to be politically correct, right? Like that's, we put a label on it so that we don't have to deal with it. And when people sometimes experience natural consequences for their behavior. We call that, we people who have power often will call that cancel culture. And it's just, it's not particularly because again, the people who own the rights to this product, to this like artistic product, creative product, 
they are deciding that they no longer want these particular books filled with images. And I feel like a lot of people who are mad about this have not actually looked at the books that they're discontinuing. Because I mean, like, there's one with a a very exaggerated, caricatured um, drawing of people from China. And the rhyme Mm -hmm. scheme plays on the word slant for their eyes. And I'm like, come on, like, this is what you're fighting for. Like, it's really important to you that this be preserved like that, that why, like, why do you need this picture and this pejorative term for someone created in the image of God? Like, why do you, why is it so important to you to hold on to it? And as Allie Henney says, this argument that I find very, it might be sincere, but I find it very unconvincing. I feel like we need to hold on to these images so that we can remember and not do them again. I'm like, look, if these images and ideas, if they led us to anti-racism, then we'd already be there, right? Mm -hmm. So do I think they need to be destroyed? Absolutely not. Do I think that they need to be preserved in a place so that we can understand where we've come? But like in context, they need to be preserved in context, not just given to children and trusting that like back in the day, that encourage children to think in racial categories that were harmful. But today we can give these kids the exact same things and it will accomplish exactly the opposite. Like it's just, that's not rational thought. And um, I think it's really important, like um, Adrian Thorne, who's a pastor in New York City, who pastors a multi-ethnic church. I mean, she says like, I want people to understand that racism is a rainstorm and none of us have an umbrella and we're all wet. So if, if you're white, you are covered in racism. If you're, if you're black, you are covered in racism and it gets expressed in different ways, but it's not a matter of like, oh, good people don't have any racist thoughts in them and bad people do. It's not that simple, which is why, again, like I really, I really appreciate the way that Abram Kendi has helped me reframe my understanding of racism in a way that I think is actually way closer to the gospel as it's not about dividing the good people from the bad people. It's about recognizing racism and white supremacies as systems and powers and principalities that we can be against those systems without being against the people who are caught up in them. And we can oppose them even when we find them in ourselves, which is exactly what they're doing. We have discovered this in ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's not part of our value system. So instead of trying to pretend that because we don't value this, this thing isn't what it is, we're going to say, oh goodness, this is counter to the impact we want to make in the world. Therefore, we are pulling it back. We no longer want to be associated with. We are acknowledging it. And like, I appreciate that they didn't just pull it they announced it. <laughs> like yes, we are no yes. longer publishing these. And this is why, because they weren't trying to make themselves look virtuous. They were trying to not look good, but be. Be good. good. Yeah. So. Yeah. And my understanding is that Dr. Seuss in his own day um, took some stands against racism. And so again, it just shows that this is a journey. So <laughs> I'm sure that when my life's story is over and you are to go through everything I've ever said and done, um, you would find some things are, are sexist. And it's like, well, did Yolanda really say that? Did he really do that? Well, yes, because I am on a journey yeah. and it's okay to point those things out. It doesn't mean that I am now or anyone else is now just trash and we throw right. them out. Because on bottom line is, I don't believe in the righteousness of me. I believe in the righteousness yeah, of God. Yeah, and that's so good. it is not, it. I mean, we need to not be in love with the illusion of our own righteousness. We need to be in love with the righteousness of God and to be, it, to be content, not with being righteous on our own, but being made righteous in Christ. And I think you know, the other thing that is really a term that I find really helpful that is so clearly happening specifically in this instance with um, Dr. Seuss, like when you're saying like, why, like, why are people fighting about these six, 
like super random books that nobody read anyway. I think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. That that one, okay, like I do know that one. But the rest of them are like, these weren't even good books. Like this is this is like not even his B catalog. It's like a C, his right. D catalog. Like it's just right. not the greatest. And it, it is a perfect example of the term that people call Darvo, which is a it is a um it is something that often you see a pattern of behavior and people aren't intending to do it, but it's a pattern of behavior that people instinctively adopt when they are, um, when they are asked to take accountability for um, like racial discrimination or racist ideology. And so DARVO, which D-A-R-V-O, which stands for deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. So this is a thing. And it's not just it doesn't have to just be about racism. It could be, I mean, it could be um, any kind of, like often you'll see like rape, rape, this happens to rape victims as well. So it's this idea that like if someone is asked, is confronted with this idea that they're responsible for destructive behavior, they'll deny it's destructive. They'll attack the person who is bringing this to their attention. And then they'll reverse the role of victim and offender. So they'll say like, I'm not, I didn't hurt you. You didn't, you're hurting me. Right. So that's when white people talk about like this, like the only people who truly are experiencing racial discrimination these days are white people. That's what it is. I'm denying that there's any white supremacy. I am attacking the people who are bringing it up. And I'm saying, you're not the victim. We're the victims, right? And it happens. I mean, you see this with the Dr. Seuss. It's like proxy, right? Like it's not the Dr. Seuss people who are doing this. It's people who think, oh, I'm being attacked for loving this author, which is a misunderstanding of what's happening. I mean, they're being manipulated by people in power, but they're saying like, okay, I'm denied. So the first thing I have to do is deny that there's anything problematic about these books. Now I'm going to attack the people who are sharing their experience, like as an Asian parent, as an Asian child, like this is harmful to see my physiology caricatured and mocked in this way. And then you're going to reverse the victim and offenders and say the people who are, um, the people who are caricatured and have racist racial um, slurs written about them in these books, they're not the, they're not the victims. They're the oppressors because Mm -hmm. they are taking away our freedom to publish these books. Right. And so I just think it's really helpful to see. And, and I think it's all connected to this idea of, we feel like if something we love or ourselves, if like, we cannot confront our own sinfulness. So when confronted with our own sinfulness, because we don't understand that that's not the end, but the beginning of freedom in Christ, mm. we think our identity is at stake. And so we just instinctively, I mean, and whatever you could say instinctively, or you could say, this is what spiritual warfare looks like. This idea that like, no, you're not unrighteous. They're unrighteous and they're making you feel bad. Therefore they're the sinners. Everything was fine because you felt fine. So, you know, that, but that's a classic yes. Darvo thing that we're seeing played out. Yeah. And it highlights once again, the power of the old practice of the church of confessing sin Mm -hmm. and receiving forgiveness. But it's so interesting, like to, in order to do that, you have to say like in this particular instance, in order to, to do this Darvo move, you have to say the words in the book are not harmful. They're just words, but the words that you're using, talking about the words in the book, those are harmful (laughs) and they're not allowed and you're not allowed to say them. I mean, like, that's just a crazy, so we all agree that words are harmful, (laughs) but you're just saying the words that harm others, make others feel pain, those are okay. But the words that make me feel pain or make me feel uncomfortable, those are out of line. And the people speaking them need to be silenced or destroyed. The devil is tricky. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 yep. So what are you thinking about? Oh, well, now I'm thinking about Dr. Seuss. <laughs> but, uh, we were talking a little bit about, I'm, I'm thinking about um, vaccines. Um, you and I both, uh, clergy, were allowed to receive um vaccines starting this week in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. You and I both were able to get appointments and get vaccinated. Um, And you and I both um, agree um, that like this vaccination is a gift from God and um, that it will protect people from potentially fatal or life-changing effects of Mm COVID-19. And um, we both believe that um, 
a way to get recover more and more of the goodness of communal life is to make people not susceptible to COVID-19 and the vaccine seems like the best way to make that happen. Um, so that's a, it's a wonderful thing. And, um, like there is a lot of inequity in terms of who has access to the vaccine so far and who doesn't. Um, and I mean, there, there was, um, already a deep suspicion and move an anti-vaxxer movement before COVID-19 came on the scene. Like a lot of people believing, not believing that vaccines work. Um, and then there is, um, a deep, um, well of injustice perpetrated against people of color in this country intentionally and unintentionally, um, but impactfully by the medical community. Um, and you don't have to go back to Tuskegee like that, you know, it's not, oh, it happened 60 years ago. Um, you know, the stats right now of black women dying at, I think four or five times the rate of yes. white women in childbirth. Yes. And, you know, the, the reasons that there are so much more chronic diseases um, within black communities, it's not because black people are less genetically healthy than white people. It's because black people don't get access to care in the way that white people do. And so just all black people experience in their own lives, often being um, shut out of care, being given um, not not their provider, healthcare providers not listening to them. So when they come and say something's wrong, and they're told no, it's not, or you're not in pain, or you know you come in and you have appendicitis, and they they say like no, you're just a drug seeker and send you away. I mean, like just all the ways that the this diseased system that has formed all of our institutions coincide around black bodies. And then that complicates people's willing ability to allow the same institution to inject a substance into their bodies, right? Like I, that's not unreasonable. And I, I'm thinking about all of that. And, um, also like being so blessed and honored and humbled to be a white pastor leading a multi-ethnic church and sort of how I believe in my judgment, and this is Kate Murphy talking, not the Lord, that I, you know, I believe that the vaccines are, are safe and effective and I trust them. And I want, because I love the people in my community, I want them to be protected by this vaccine. And I think it's wrong for pastors to manipulate people in their congregations, even if they feel like they're very sincerely, you know, doing something for their own good. Right. So I want to sort of figure out how to walk that line between like explaining and providing information and context and access to everyone in my community. And also recognizing that you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say, thus says the Lord, get the COVID-19 vaccine, right? And and so I I um I'm just thinking a, a lot about that. And um the last thing I'll say is that um there's a really great article in the New York Times today that my friend Kaya Dunn sent me and shared with the church about the fact that when we talk about the vaccine and particularly like how African-Americans who obviously, not obviously, but statistics show out, die, have a mortality rate that's three times as high as white people from this disease, but they are the least vaccinated group of people in the country. So they're most at risk, but least protected in the country. And while suspicion and mistrust of the vaccine are real and must be acknowledged, it's way too easy for white people to see that gap between who's most at risk and who is most protected and go like, oh, that's just because people of color don't trust the medical establishment and like, that's too bad. They should try, you know, whatever. Instead of also recognizing that there's also a huge inequity in how you can get the vaccine. And so white people, powerful people are have way better access to get the vaccine than 
poorer and less powerful people. And so when we see the Black community being vaccinated at a lower rate, it's really important not to blame the Black community for that by saying, like, you should be trusting trust us, or you should be trusting us, or that's too bad, but there's nothing we can do, but to actually look and see how are decisions being made about who gets access when, and recognize that actually Black people and white people have about the same amount of hesitancy towards getting the vaccine, but white people who want the vaccine can get it much easier than Black people who want the vaccine. And just looking at that truth and, and grieving it because honestly, I'm not in charge of vaccine distribution and I don't envy the people who have to make those choices about who gets what when, but like epidemiologically, epidemiologically, you could make a case that the first the people first in line to be vaccinated should be the people most likely to be harmed by this disease. So you could make a case that we need to vaccinate black people in this country first because they're three times as high, you know, so you should start with the oldest black adults and then, I mean, you know, like do it that way because that's where the mortality and morbidity rates are. And these other sort of race neutral ways that we are giving access to making these choices are actually not race neutral and in deliberate and undeliberate ways, the impact is white people are getting access to this vaccine first and then we're blaming black people for not having for not having access for not having the vaccine that we white people are most likely controlling this are not giving them access to so that's what i'm thinking about wow wow i mean you raised two really good issues trust and access um i know when it comes to trust um when we were talking about this earlier uh, i was sharing that um when i got to my vaccination site um, I got there pretty early, so I had about an hour and a half wait. And as I sat there in my car, <laughs> I mean, all of these scary conspiracy theories started doing battle against my mind, and I had to fight that um, because I know, I believe that they are not true. Um. And it was it was much more challenging than I anticipated um, in in terms of just just the level of trust. Uh, one of the things that helped me was number one, I have a little sister who is a nurse, and she very clearly said, "Get the vaccine, get the vaccine." Also, um, my doctor is a black woman uh, that I trust, and. Um, so I just have these two sources that have reassured me this is okay. Uh, and I can imagine, you know, people who do not have those voices that mm -hmm. they trust being very reluctant um, mm -hmm. to um, get the vaccine. And so I hope uh, if anyone who is listening to this right now, um, who may be reluctant to get the vaccine, that I might serve as a, a trusted voice to say, get the vaccine, get the mm -hmm. vaccine. Um, when it comes to access, you know, when I watched the news, when I saw clips of people getting the vaccine, it was overwhelmingly, you know, white people. Um, mm -hmm. And I received the vaccine at a historically black church <laughs> in a black neighborhood here in Charlotte. And um, if that had not been made available, I mean, and that was a real gift, I did not have a plan. Uh, and, and again, this was something that was dropped in my lap. It was given to me. Some church, uh, C.N. Jenkins Church here in Charlotte, did the work of, of providing access. And... Um, I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, those those two issues are just huge, trust and access. Well, and I think also just the intersection that we play as pastors, um, you know, understanding what our lane is and understanding that, you know, and I mean, I think of this about, I mean, any almost any decision that people make, um, it is my job to give people the gospel tools 
to then discern with the help of the Holy Spirit how to act in any given situation. So it's not my, you know, it's wrong for me to say like, okay, I understand the gospel. So people need to vote for X or vote for Y. It's wrong. It's wrong when pastors do that. Um, it's wrong when pastors do that and and tell people to vote for candidates who I think are <laughs> doing the Lord's work. And it's wrong when people do it for in support. It's not about whether or not they're right at it. It's about, that's not, that's not our role. Our role is not to think for people. Our role is to equip the saints. And so we have to do that in, in every place politically. And also when it comes to making this decision and like, I do trust the science behind this vaccine and the process behind it. I do think it's life-saving. Um, but I know that it is not my role to use my pastoral authority to say, you don't have to trust it. I trust it. So you trust me. And like, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong all day long. And so finding, finding this space of, you know, wanting to bring accurate information, wanting Mm -hmm. to acknowledge the ways that I think, um, you know, people are being harmed by their lack of access. And, but then also really understanding that as important as this is, it's adiaphron. Like there is no, you know, there's no passage of the Bible that says, get the, get the vaccine. Right. And, and much as I think it might be right for people to do, I'm also just aware that only, only God and the Holy Spirit have the full picture of what is best. And I don't ever want someone substituting my judgment for the voice of the Holy Spirit. In yeah, there was a, um, a story that came out of South Africa, South Africa uh, months ago, and uh, people were angry because it seemed um, that the South African government was allowing a company to experiment on poor, emphasis on poor Black Africans. And when you talk to people on the continent, I don't hear voices saying that they're going to take the vaccine. Most voices that I hear from coming from the continent continent are saying, do not take this vaccine. And I get that. I mean, I get that. And I can't, I can't be in judgment. Um, I, I, I I wish those voices were different, but they're not. And at the same time, I turned on my television last week last week and i tuned into a white christian in air quotes program and here's what they said they said that this vaccine is a preparation it is to get us ready for the mark of the beast and they said, and, and here's the connection. They quoted the book of Revelation. There's that, that place that says, uh, if you don't have the mark of the beast, you cannot buy or sell. And this person said, um, this is getting us ready for the mark of the beast because they're going to say, if you don't have the vaccine, you cannot buy or sell. So don't get the vaccine. Now that, I can stand in judgment of. <laughs> that is ludicrous. Yeah. That is bananas. That's not that's only wrong. Not only is it just a ridiculous understanding of scripture, it's also just a really naive understanding of capitalism. Because I promise you, no matter what, <laughs> but it you'll is be able total, to buy. Maybe not sell, but you'll be able to buy. <laughs> but it is a twisting, yeah, of the scripture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's um, much misinformation. Well, and I think just the bottom line is, I mean, for a long time, people in charge of institutions in this country and maybe in the West in general have made choices to abuse um, powerless people Mm -hmm. and have known that that was going to break trust with those powerless people and have made a calculation that that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because there's scarce resources. So if people don't trust that's fine because we don't really want to give, you know, we don't, we don't want to interact with these people anyway. Um, so the, the deep, you know, uncovering of this whole 
of this whole experience is um, for all these years that people have known that, that, you know, black people have been receiving worse outcomes in the healthcare system and just not, and even acknowledging like that's wrong, but not had any passion to figure out. So how do we fix it? Like, it's not, it's not my family. It's not affecting me. So like, it's wrong, but uh, what are you going to do? Right. I mean, now the chickens are coming home to roost because, you know, if this vaccine continues to spread significantly, um, a variant will pop up that this vaccination will not, will not give us immunity to. So, you know, for the first time in our, the truth, the spiritual truth is going to be born out in our physical bodies, which is, you just can't say, mm. well, you're the hand, you don't have any part of me. Like mm. the fact that the hand is unvaccinated means that the whole body is going to succumb to this disease. Mm. Right. So that, that is, you can't deny that. Like in our systems, you can deny it and say, some people are just garbage and they don't count. And like, if they die, they die, who cares? Um, but that's not true. And our bodies are about to show us what our spirits and our minds have trembled to acknowledge, which is we're our brother's keepers. That's a word. Woo. Mm. May the ushers come. <laughs> we will now receive the offering. <laughs> That's what you get when you go to college for biology and then get sent to seminary. Mm. Um, friend, I got to go because we're having takeout church in like T minus and 10 minutes. So, um, we just, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm preaching for you this week. You are because you are kind and gracious oh, because and I'm honored. full of covenant I'm honored. love. I'm honored. <laughs> um, so we're talking about forgiveness. That that's it. Forgiveness. Why do we got to forgive? I don't know. Tune in at eight, but, but we have to, um, <laughs> I got to wrap up. Um, so thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more about Derrida Presbyterian Church, where Yolanda serves, D-E-R-I-T-A, um, you can look at deridapres.org for their website, and you can listen to Yolanda's message on the Derrida Church podcast on Membean, Podbean. Podbean. Gosh, I just can't do it. Podbean website. And you can worship with the Derrida Church community on YouTube D-E-R-I-T-A, Derrida Presbyterian Church. You can worship with them. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, uh, where I serve, thegrovecharlotte.org is our website. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can worship with us on the live stream at 10 a.m. on Sundays on The Grove Church Facebook page, The Grove Church Charlotte Presbyterian. Accept no substitutes. There's lots of groves out there. <laughs> and um, you can listen to messages from the Grove on the Grove Church podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>